at Jesus' arrest. Matthew chapter 26. We'll read today verses 47 through 56. And if you have a, a pew Bible, that's page 833. Matthew 26, verses 47 through 56. Continuing in the garden where we were last week with Jesus. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man, seize him. He came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled? that it must be so. At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber, with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. This is the word of God. God is faithful to his word. You may be seated. Let's pray as we begin. Lord, I praise you already just for a wonderful time of, of worship together as, as the body of Christ. God, to sing these ancient songs and new songs, testify of that great mass of people before the throne of Christ. From old and young, from old, old age to, to new ages, and people from every tongue and tribe and nation. God, we are privileged to be here, your people, to hear your word, to praise our Savior who was slain for us. And as we look to your word to, to better understand this, guide us by your Spirit, Help us to understand what is happening here in the garden as our Savior is arrested. God, help us to see your providence. Help us to trust your providence. Yes, this is in Christ's name. Amen. A, a few months ago, I guess this was before the Apostles' Creed series, we were going through Matthew chapter 25. And I told you that when we were going through Matthew chapter 25, what we call the Olivet Discourse, Jesus' sermon, his, his last sermon on the Mount of Olives, I told you that this was last, that was Jesus' last teaching before his crucifixion. And if you don't remember me saying that because it was so long ago, or, or you weren't here, or you just forgot, good. Because I think I was wrong. <laughs> Chapter 25 was his last sermon. 
But it wasn't his last time teaching his disciples before he went to the cross. Jesus was always teaching his disciples, wasn't he? Even to his last breath, even dying on the cross, staying on the cross, we just sang it, is, it was our sin that held him there, even staying on the cross when he could have taken himself off. But breathing his last breath, even dying, he was teaching his disciples. By doing the Father's will, by obeying the Father's will. But this morning's text really is the last time that he is audibly speaking with authority, teaching his disciples before he goes to the cross. He will say some more things next week. He'll say some more things after that. But this is the last time that the disciples are with him, all gathered there as, as, as he's being arrested. And he has three messages that we're going to see. They're all basically the same message, but each has a different audience with the disciples listening in. The first message that we're going to see in our text is for Jesus' betrayer. It's Jesus speaking to his betrayer. So that's the first one we'll see. That's how we'll break up the sermon. The second message is for the defender. And then the last message is for the crowds. All three messages are in the hearing of the disciples. They're meant for them ultimately to hear and understand what's happening. All of them are very short messages. The first one's only three words. So, so it's a, they're, they're, they're quick messages, but cosmic truths are being communicated in these messages. The first truth that we're going to see communicated in these three messages is that Jesus is in command of what's happening to him. He's in absolute, total control of what's going on. The second message that, boy, have we been hearing this one throughout Matthew's gospel. The second message is that the scriptures are being fulfilled. Jesus is in command and the scriptures are being fulfilled. And we're going to see that as we go through the text this morning. We'll start with that first lesson spoken to the betrayer, Judas. So you remember back in, in the Last Supper, when we were moving our way through the, the Last Supper, uh, Jesus had announced that one of the twelve would betray him. You remember that? Well, here we are. This is that moment. This is the time of betrayal. It's come. Matthew says in verse 47, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve. We know this is the man who will betray him. Matthew says with Judas, there's this Great crowd. That doesn't mean wonderful crowd. This is a big crowd. Large crowd. A mob with him. We're used to seeing mobs. We watched uh, the news that would actually covered the, those riots last year. We saw those large crowds. So think of that big Antifa crowd. You have this big crowd with Jesus. They're armed with swords and clubs. And the crowd has been sent from the chief priests and elders. Judas comes up to Jesus. He sees him. He knows where he's going to be, kisses him, and he kisses him because that's the sign, right? Matthew tells us that the one whom he kissed was supposed to be the guy that the crowd, the mob, is supposed to arrest. And last week, Saunders explained to us very clearly that in the Middle East, uh, the kiss is a way of greeting someone. It's roughly equivalent to our handshake, maybe more warm then our handshake, but not quite as intimate as our hug. So somewhere on that gradient in between a handshake and a hug is the Middle Eastern kiss. Judas and Jesus have this long-standing friendship with one another, and their relationship 
is of the kiss sort. So Judas sees him and greets him with a kiss. Now, I, I, I've got to admit to you, as I was studying this week, and, and Dustin Saunders can testify to this, I was sure, absolutely sure, that I was going to find somewhere in the Old Testament some other betrayer who kissed his friend. And that, that this betrayal would be this, this moment of prophetic fulfillment. And the reason I was looking for that is because that's how I've gotten used to reading Matthew's gospel, because that's the way that Matthew's written his gospel. Surely, I thought, Absalom did this to David. Well, he didn't. Actually, there's nothing like this in Scripture. Throughout Scripture, whenever there is a kiss, it really is a sign of friendship. It really is a sign of acceptance and affection. And Judas' kiss here is one of a kind. When it comes to betrayal, Judas's kiss is unique in Bible history. It gets his own name, right? We, we have that, oh, that was a Judas kiss. That was not a genuine kiss. That is not genuine friendship. We, we do know that Judas is fulfilling prophecy. We saw that in, in the Last Supper. Remember when uh, Jesus was quoting Psalm 41 9? Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. That was Judas fulfilling prophecy. A friend of Jesus was going to betray him and is betraying him. But this kiss is his own special way of doing it. And as Matthew tells us, it, it's, it, it really is a signal. It's a, it's a signal to the mob which person they're supposed to arrest. Most commentators that, that, that I read this past week point out that given that this riffraff crowd that was sent to arrest Jesus uh, was not the priests and elders who had been debating him, they probably, this crowd didn't know what he looked like. And remember, the chief priests and elders weren't there. Matthew tells us that. Look again at verse 47. The great crowd with clubs and swords are sent from the chief priests and elders. But it doesn't include the chief priests and elders. All the big wigs who had seen Jesus in the temple and were debating with Jesus in the temple and were embarrassed by Jesus in the temple, they know what he looks like. They, they, they probably have his, his face etched into their minds as waking up at night thinking about this man. But their servants sent to do the dirty work might not have known what he looks like. Not to mention it's dark, there's no street lights. This is a dark garden in a dark place. So this kiss from Judas really is as straightforward as Matthew says. It is the sign of who to arrest. So Judas comes up, he kisses Jesus with a, a polite greeting, greetings rabbi. And with that, the betrayal has taken place. And you would think that that would be the moment when they grab Jesus and take him away. But it's not quite. And this is, this is, there's a very subtle word that Matthew points us to. Nothing happens until after Jesus speaks and gives permission. Nobody lays a hand on Jesus until Jesus says in verse 50, friend, do what you came to do. And only then 
And that little word that Matthew uses is important. Only then did they seize Jesus. Verse 50 says, after, then, after Jesus says, do it, then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And that order of operations that Matthew is presenting for us, that's not accidental. They, they did not come lay hands on Jesus while he was laying down praying. They did not sneak up on Jesus and jump out from behind the bushes and, and tackle him and arrest him. No, Matthew's very, very clear about what's happening. Jesus is in control. Jesus is in control of his own arrest. Jesus has to first say, do what you came to do in order for this arrest to proceed. What is subtle in Matthew is really strikingly clear in John's gospel. So when you read John's gospel, gospel, this becomes really graphic. John says, when the crowd says they're looking for Jesus, and Jesus says, I am he, then the crowd falls down. They don't overpower Jesus. Matthew's showing us that. They don't overpower Jesus. No one overpowers Jesus. Jesus has calmed the wind and the waves. He has bound hordes of demons. He's raised the dead. No one overpowers the Son of God. Jesus allows himself to be arrested here. And and when you read any of the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, it's, it's clear from every account, Jesus is in command of what's going on, even of his own arrest. No one takes Jesus' life. He gives his life. So when Jesus says to Judas, friend, do what you came to do, Jesus, the Son of God, he's granting permission. He's allowing himself to be arrested because it's the Father's will that this take place. That's the first very subtle message for the disciples. Jesus is in command. The next scene comes along very quickly. And with this next scene comes the next lesson. Look at verse 51. In verse 51, Matthew tells us that Jesus has his followers with him. So it's not just Jesus there. The followers are with him now. They've gotten up from from where they're praying, and they've all moved forward for this moment. Followers are with him. And one of them, one of the followers, Matthew doesn't say who it is. We're going to call him, for the sake of the sermon today, the defender. Right? Remember I told you we had the betrayer and the defender? Here's the defender. The defender, look at the way he described Matthew describes him. He stretches out his hand, grabs his sword, strikes the servant of the high priest. We'll come back to that stretched out his hand bit in just a moment. But we can do a little bit of detective work here as we analyze the crime scene. Either this man is a poor swordsman, and he was going for the servant's head, and he missed, or he's an excellent swordsman, and he managed to strike the smallest part of, the, of this man's body. And we're going to, I think, for the sake of argument, understand that this likely fisherman uh, is not the best swordsman. So this is a swing and a miss. John tells us, when you read John's gospel, that it was Peter. Peter was the one doing the butchering here. And it seemed to me, as I was studying this, um, that it would have served Matthew's telling of the story well if he would have just told us this was Peter. 
but he doesn't. He could have included the name Peter. Matthew was there. He's one of the 12. He knows that Peter was there. Peter, he had just told us about Peter's bravado, saying, oh, I'm not going to... I'm not going to deny you, Lord. I will be with you all the way to death. In this incident, this scene would have been Peter proving that. And yet Matthew doesn't identify him. And since there are no mistakes in the Bible, we have to to know that Matthew has left out the name intentionally. This is not accidental. Matthew has a pattern of doing this for us as we've really just gotten to know how he writes When Matthew includes a name, he's zooming in. The camera lens is on that person's face. He's drawing focus on that person. Next week, we're going to see, as as Peter denies Jesus three times, the focus is on Peter. There's no mistake. It's about Peter. He denied Jesus three times. But when Matthew is mum about the name, he's zooming out on the scene. And when the scene is zoomed out, our attention naturally focuses on Jesus. And that's the point here. That's what's happening here. An unnamed follower of Jesus has cut off someone's ear, and yet our focus, the way that Matthew's written it, our focus is still on Jesus, isn't it? If this were any other story, even without the assailant's name, the the action would be the center of attention. Right? Those of you who were around in in 1997, so this section of the of the church, there, there was a second fight between Mike Tyson and Evander Holyfield. Mike Tyson bit off Evander Holyfield's ear. And that was the only thing you read about that fight for the next several weeks. It's still known as the ear fight. Nobody even remembers what happens after that. Having your ear taken off is a big deal. That is the center of our attention in that fight. And yet here, because of the way Matthew so masterfully tells us the story, we almost just shrug at this whole ear incident. It's, it's minor. We look past what just happened in action. We look past the name of the defender. We look past the poor swordsmanship, and we look to Jesus. Our focus is on Jesus. How's Jesus going to respond to this? What's he going to do? Will, will, will Jesus do some sort of Jason Bourne thing and, and get out from arrest when everybody's looking at the ear laying on the gravel? Will, will there be a, a puff of smoke and Jesus just disappears like, like Loki? Is this the moment when the anointed king begins to fight back and he calls down fire from heaven and he avenges his enemies and he storms the temple and he gains the allegiance of the Jews and then he takes over the world? We're all looking at Jesus because this is the moment of action. This is the crisis moment. What's Jesus going to do? And the one who... Revelation 20 has a sword coming from his mouth because he's the power of his word. The, the, one, the one who in creation was called into being spoke. That one speaks like he usually does. Jesus speaks. And this time the message is for this defender and anyone else who is thinking of drawing a sword. Look at verse 52, what Jesus says. Put your sword back into its place. And he keeps going. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Now what does Jesus mean by this? Is this, as the Anabaptists, we're not Anabaptists, we are 
the right Baptist. Anabaptists suggest, is this an argument for pacifism? Are, are we to extend this, what Jesus has just said, to mean that Christians should not own knives or swords or slingshots or bows and arrows or guns? It's not what he means here. First of all, he does not say get rid of your sword. He says put your sword back into its place. And while the difference is subtle, there is a difference, isn't there? That word, the sword's place is not on the ground. The sword's place is not back in the smelter or back at the, the blacksmith shop. The place for the sword is back at the side of the defender in its scabbard, its sheath. Jesus is not saying here that it's wrong to have a sword or to use a sword. In fact, if you read Luke's account of this, at the Last Supper, Jesus told his disciples to carry a sword. So this is not an ethical issue, all right? So do not bring an ethical question to what is not being answered for you. What Jesus is saying here, we need to draw our attention to this or else we'll be distracted. The sword is not to be used to rescue Jesus. That's the point. Remember how I said it was important that the defender stretched out his hand and got his sword? That language, stretched out his hand, is rarely used in the, in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament, it's all over the place. It means more than the action itself. Matthew isn't describing how the defender's body moved. He's describing the motivation behind the action. In the Old Testament, whenever the Lord stretched out his hand, you'll see that exact language, whenever the Lord stretched out his hand, he sometimes does so in judgment of Israel, but it's more often a description of how God defends Israel or avenges Israel. The Lord would stretch out his hand against Israel's enemies. And of course, we know that doesn't mean God has a hand that can be stretched. It means that God was showing his strength and his judgment towards Israel's enemies. That's what Matthew is saying that Jesus' defender is doing here. He is stretching out his hand toward Jesus' enemies. He's showing his strength toward them. Here's what Jesus is telling him. That's not the place for you. Jesus doesn't need this heroic defender to rescue him. And what he says next clarifies this. Look at verse 53. You think that I cannot appeal to my father? And he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels. This is the point of put your sword away. The point is not there is no place for weapons in the Christian life. That's not even close to the issue. It's not a question the disciples or anybody's asking. The point is that Jesus must go to the cross. It is God's will. It is written in the scriptures. If Jesus were trying to avoid the cross, if he wanted to stop his, his imminent death from happening, he wouldn't be asking a handful of fishermen and a tax collector and a zealot to rescue him. He would have the Father send 12 legions of angels, warrior angels, the hosts of heaven, tens of thousands of them. Angelic armies from heaven have taken this land before when the Canaanites ruled over it. 
and those armies could take this land again. In the blink of an eye, not only would Jesus be rescued by these heavenly warriors, but he, he would take the throne in Jerusalem, and, and from there he could destroy the entire Roman Empire and the armies of the world with it. If that were the will of God. And if that was the will of God, nothing could stand in his way. But political domination was not the will of God. Not yet. God has a far greater purpose for Jesus. And Jesus, by allowing himself to be arrested, by not calling down angelic armies, he's communicating, this is not the time for you to stretch out your hand with a sword. This is the time for God to stretch out his hand and put on display his far greater power than what you can conjure with a sword. This is the time where God will display his power at the cross. And we won't see that until later. And the apostles will not understand that until much later. They'll get a glimpse of it after the resurrection. And Jesus is explaining it to them. But then when the Holy Spirit is poured out on them, then they get it. When God teaches them through the Spirit's power, the power of the cross, then they will begin to preach the cross wherever they go. But they don't get it yet. The reason now why this defender and the other apostles were not supposed to defend Jesus with swords to prevent his arrest was because Jesus' arrest was a part of the plan. Jesus was the lamb going to the slaughter. He is, as we read in Revelation 5, the conquering lamb. He is the conquering king. And right now, he's going behind enemy lines to accomplish his mission. So Jesus doesn't need rescuing from the defender here, does he? Because Jesus is doing the rescuing. While it appears here from a worldly perspective that Jesus is losing the battle, while it appears that the whole messianic mission to take the throne of Israel and become king is, is, is failing, that's not what's happening. What appears to be a foolish surrender to an angry mob is actually the wisdom and the power of God. Do you see it? Jesus is giving himself over to the powers of the world so that he can rescue you and me. He's doing what he's doing to redeem you. This is what he came for. This is the purpose of the incarnation. This is the meaning of Christmas. The scriptures are being fulfilled. And our call to worship, we read Galatians 4. And what did Galatians 4 say? By the Apostle Paul, led along by the Spirit, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law. And in every song we've sung this morning, that's the message. This is why Jesus came. He was born to die. He was born in a manger to grow up and to be betrayed, to be arrested in the garden. He was born to be tried in the middle of the night by liars, by false accusers. He, he was born to stand before a Roman governor with no backbone. He was born to have the crowds cry out, 
for Barabbas and to crucify him. He was born to be beaten and he was born to be killed on a cross. That's why he was sent. This is the mission and this is the beginning of the end right here when he's arrested so that he could redeem us and this redemption you know this does not take place by peter or you or me taking up arms to avenge the name of jesus that is not how the kingdom works if we were the ones fighting to earn our own redemption, we would have a reason to boast, wouldn't we? We would get medals. No, the, the, the reason that, that Jesus was going to the cross, the reason that the, why the cross is the wisdom and the power of God is because God is accomplishing here what only God can do. And he's, sin, he's doing it in a way that no human could, could boast in the presence of God. 1 Corinthians 1, 27-29, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Put your sword away not your job. God chose to have his son die on the cross because this is the way of redemption. This is how we are saved. Jesus doesn't need our defense. He doesn't need our strength. He defends us. And the way to salvation is through our weakness, trusting in him. So if you are fighting, if you feel like you're fighting for your own redemption, put down your sword. Christ has accomplished it. Jesus' last message for the disciples is directed at the mob. See that? Look with me at verse 55. At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out against me as a robber? With swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. Well, the, the word that we translate, and most of our Bibles translate as robber there, is actually, historically, more of an insurrectionist, or a, a better translation might be terrorist, domestic terrorist. It's the word that we see later on, and Josephus used to describe the zealots who fought to overthrow the Roman Empire. They were these, these, what we are calling robbers here. They're insurrectionists. The men who will hang on the crosses beside Jesus, they are described the same way. They fit this category. Barabbas, who the crowds cry out for, he's one of these guys. And Jesus is saying, you're coming at me armed to the hilt with an entire mob of people as if I were leading some sort of uprising. As if I had a militia behind me. I've got guys who can't even swing a sword. And then he reminds them, but I'm not even a militia leader. And they've heard that already because they've seen Jesus tell 
Peter, the defender, to put the sword down. He's saying, I'm not a militia leader. I'm not a terrorist. I'm a teacher. And you've seen me teaching, sitting in the temple courtyard. You could have picked me up at any moment. You could have arrested me any time while I was sitting down, totally defenseless. But you didn't. And, and the gist, what he's communicating to them, that he knows that they know that he hasn't done anything wrong. He knows that they know that what they're doing is unjust. If he had committed any real crimes against God or against Rome, he would have been arrested already. If his teaching were illegal or immoral or heretical, he would have already been stoned. Why not arrest him while he's teaching? But the fact is, the chief priests and the elders who sent this mob are unjust cowards. They are the true insurrectionists because they're rebelling against their God and against his kingdom. And they're the ones who have come out armed to the hilt. They didn't arrest Jesus publicly in the light of the day because they feared the crowds. Instead, they send their minions to arrest him under the cover of night. And they're going to try him under the cover of night. And all of that seems, as we read this, that seems dark and it seems twisted. And it seems like Jesus has been taken advantage of. Like there's some dark evil plot against Jesus that he's helpless against. But in case we have forgotten, that is not true. Look at verse 56. Jesus calmly and resolutely reminds us of what's going on. He will not let the disciples forget that he is in command. He says, but all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. God has not lost control. God has ordained this. This appears to be an unjust act, but this is God working out his better, higher justice for your sake. And that right there is the point of all of this passage that we've been reading. That's Jesus' message. All of this has taken place. All of this has taken place. Not just my coming, but all of this, the betrayal, the arrest, what's going to happen later on in the night, and what's going to happen the next morning, all of this has taken place so that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. From beginning to end, Jesus speaks to the betrayer, he speaks to the defender, he speaks to the mob, and in each of these little messages, he's saying the same thing. God is sovereign over the death of Christ. God has ordained this. It looks like the mercenaries in the dark of night have won. It looks like Judas, the evil betrayer, has won. It looks like the disciples have failed. After all, look, look what happens at the end of the verse. All of the disciples left him and fled. But do you remember? Even that, even that was prophesied. Even their failure is a fulfillment of Scripture. This looks like lose, lose, lose. But listen to what Jesus is saying again and again 
This is happening so that scripture would be fulfilled. This is the Father's will. God is sovereign, sovereign all over this so that your redemption would be brought. We saw this way of thinking way back at the beginning of chapter 26 as we've begun the Passion Week. Matthew has been showing us from the start that God is sovereign over Jesus' death. Jesus told his disciples when he would die on the Passover. He told them how he would die on a cross. He said who would kill him. The priests, chief priests and the elders and the Pharisees and the scribes. Jesus told his disciples that one of them would betray him and hand him over, and that's happening. He even told his disciples what they would do, how they would respond to his arrest, and that's happening. He has known, Jesus has known, how all of these things would take place because God ordained from before time began how these things would take place. And he spoke it into Scripture through the prophets so that when it happened, we would know Jesus the Christ. God is sovereign over the death of his son. He has not lost control. And Jesus knows that. And Jesus believes it. Just think about what's happening in this story versus what's not happening. When Judas came to Jesus to betray him, does Jesus stand there and plead with him? And beg him, oh, Judas, I just wish you wouldn't do this. You're making a huge mistake. He doesn't. Because Judas isn't, is not the one in control of the situation. And when, and when the mob, the angry mob, comes and arrests Jesus, does, does Jesus try to dissuade them? He doesn't. He doesn't argue with the mob. He doesn't try to stop them. He doesn't resist arrest. When, when he goes later on in the night before the Sanhedrin, he doesn't resist. When he stands before Pilate, he doesn't resist. He doesn't try to dissuade Pilate. The one person who Jesus knows could stop this is his Father in heaven. That's why throughout the entire Passion narrative, the only person we ever see Jesus pleading with is the Father in heaven. Jesus knows that God is sovereign over his death, and he knows that, and he trusts him. And this is 100% consistent with everything that Jesus has taught so far. He's taught his disciples how to live like this. Way back in chapter 10, Jesus was sending out his disciples to, to announce the coming of the kingdom. Proclaim repentance for the kingdom is here. And he told them, do you remember this? He told them that, that, he, that they would be persecuted like him. And they're like, well, we haven't seen you being persecuted yet, but it's coming. It's being fulfilled in our reading. He was foreshadowing then what was going to happen to him here in chapter 26. And he taught them way back in Matthew chapter 10. He told them, verse 28, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are numbered. He was teaching them then. Who knows 
how many years before? What he's living out here in the garden. He was teaching them then that his life is not in the hands of the betrayer. His life is not in the hands of the crowds. The mob with the swords and the clubs and all the chaos. His life is not in the hands of the chief priests and the elders. It's not in Pilate's hands. His life is in the Father's hands. And so he fears the Father and he trusts the Father because the Father loves him to no end. The Father is the one who is sovereign over his life. And when he teaches that, he's saying if one little sparrow cannot fall to the ground apart from the Father's will, then certainly the Son himself cannot be killed apart from the Father's will. And as Jesus taught, that's true for you. And it's true for me. Those whom the Father has set his love on, we are cared by him, cared for by him as well. Everything that happened to Jesus was ordained by the Father. It is and was in the perfect good will of the Father, written in the scriptures, so that when it happened, we would know that Jesus is the Christ, that God's redemption of the world was taking place. All right, so, so if that's true for, the, for, for Jesus, let's bring it together. If, if on the one end of providence, we have the single sparrow that, that cannot fall from the sky without the Father ordaining it. And if at the other end of providence, we have the Son who cannot go to the cross, he cannot be touched, not a hair can fall from his head without the Father ordaining it, then you or I, you and I, are in between that spectrum, aren't we? If both of those things are true, do you see what God is showing us? Everything that our loving Father allows you and I to endure is within his providence. Your life is not written down in the scriptures. The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours did not search and inquire about when you would come. Praise God. You're not Jesus. The scriptures are not about you. They're not about me. The scriptures that Jesus believed and trusted in are about him. And they're about the grace that was to come through him to you and I. But your salvation is in the hands of the Father. And the same providence that cares for the sparrow, and the same providence that directs every footstep of the Son and everyone around him, is the same providence that cares for you. Amen? That's Jesus' message. As the disciples are seeing Jesus trust in the Lord, step after step after step, when everything seems to be completely falling apart, Jesus is reminding his disciples, this is God's plan. This is what God is doing to redeem you. And if God would do that, if God would redeem you through his son in that way, then do not think that providence stops somehow. That he would not see it through to the end. So wherever you are, if you are struggling in your faith, 
He will see it through to the end. If you are not quite yet there, you're questioning these things. You haven't quite made that decision to follow Christ. God will see it through to the end. Trust Him. Trust Him.